exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew around you. We're going to be starting in John chapter 6, starting in verse 16. So while you're, you're turning, let me remind you that last week we saw Jesus feed 5,000 men with just a small boy's lunch. And after Jesus did this great sign, the people were actually ready to storm the capital. They're, they're ready to make him king by force. But Jesus wants none of it. Instead of becoming an earthly king and being king in Jerusalem, he actually retreats to the mountains by himself to pray. And that's where we left off last week. So today we're going to hear about another very well-known story. We're going to be here about the time that Jesus walked on the water. If you're raised in church, you probably can't even remember the first time that you heard this story because it's so common to us. But let me warn you not to make the same mistake that the crowd made last week. They saw the sign Jesus performed. They didn't doubt that Jesus did it. They even recognized Jesus as a king and a prophet, but they missed the point of the miracle. They still missed the main merit, uh, message. They got that Jesus was a king, and they didn't realize that he is the king. They got that Jesus is a prophet, but they missed that he was the prophet. And that's a very real danger for us who are raised in Christian homes and who have heard this story a thousand times. So I just say... Be open to that. And I think we really need to pray that God would open our eyes and guide us and give us even new vision in this passage as we seek to study the Word of God. So let's pray together. Dear God of all abundance, you performed the sign of feeding the 5,000 in the presence of 1,000 and they missed the message. Help us this morning as we read about the power of Jesus. Guide our hearts and direct our minds so that we don't miss the message but help us to receive the bread of life. May the sermon that is received and heard be far better than the one that is preached. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The great theologian and actor Jim Carrey once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. We all believe the lie that if only we could get that next thing, whatever it is, we would finally be happy. If only I could have more money. If only I had the right husband or wife. If only I could get a spouse. If only I had the right time. If only I had more vacation time. If only I had another kid or the right kids. Then I would finally be happy. Here's the problem. None of those things can satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. So you and I were made in the image of Almighty God. You and I were made to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And whenever we seek satisfaction to anything else, it's like trying to shove a square peg in a round hole. It's not going to work. And the greater problem then is that we're not just missing out on happiness and satisfaction when we look for happiness in other places. We're actually committing idolatry because when you seek to be satisfied in something that is not God, seeking ultimate satisfaction in something that's not God. That's idolatry. That's making something else a God which is not God. Let me explain. For instance, I love my family. Family is a good gift from God. Amen? The Bible commands us to love and to serve and to protect and to provide for your family. But the moment that I seek my ultimate satisfaction in my wife or my daughter, I'm actually worshiping them. And that's a sin. 
And not only is it a sin, it's putting a burden on my wife and my daughter that they can't possibly live up to because they're not God. They make terrible little gods. Some of you are still dealing with the trauma of growing up with a father or mother that treated you like a god and sought fulfillment in you. And if only if you could live up to their expectations. And you could never live up to that expectations. Because the deepest desire of that parent's heart was God. And they were trying to place it on you. We put that on our spouse. We put it on our, our job. We put it on anyone else. It's putting an expectation that they will never live up to. It's putting an expectation that will never be satisfied. Because my family can't satisfy the deepest desires of my heart. They were not built to. And so now all of us, in whatever situation, in whatever place you are seeking satisfaction, you have two problems now. First, you're not satisfied in the God that you've made and tried to worship. And secondly, now you've sinned against the true God. And that brings with it not only a guilty conscience, but eventually judgment. And that's a problem. So how do we deal with a guilty conscience? A lot of people will distract themselves through food or drink or pleasure. But then once again, it's never enough. Like I've had some incredibly good food in my lifetime. There's meals that I, I dream of. That, oh, that lobster was so good. That steak was just fantastic. But guess what? I'm still hungry. I, I never said, oh, you know what? That steak was so good. I never wanted it again. The desire to eat that thing still exists within me. Like even when we're talking about relationships and the love between a man and a woman, have you ever met a man that says, you know, I don't ever want to have sex again. I'm really satisfied. That time was really good. And, and here's the thing. Whether it's food or whether it's sex or whether it's our loved ones or our family members, it's never enough because these things were not built to satisfy our heart. And, and people will use the pleasures of the world really as just a distraction and say, oh, if only I had this, then it would get there. It's never enough. And really, in reality, what most people try to do, even though a lot of people in our culture will seek pleasure as a little God to worship and to serve, what most people throughout all of human history and throughout the world, what they turn to is religion. Right? You didn't think I was going to go there because look at where we are. This is, aren't, isn't this a religious? Aren't you in favor of religion? In some senses, yes. But religion, in the sense of trying to earn your way to heaven, of trying to do good things because Here's what we do. We've done bad things, so let me go to a religious institution. And if I do enough good things, I can make that guilty conscience go away. But it's never enough. There's a lot of people who are seeking to find satisfaction in religion and in doing good deeds, but it's never enough. They're working hard to get rid of that guilt, but it's never enough. It's, it's like this idea that maybe if I do enough good deeds, then somehow I can tip the scales and my good deeds while I weigh my bad deeds. And let me tell you, biblically, there are no scales. They do not exist. There's not this, oh, maybe someone's good. The Bible considers if you have sinned, you've fallen short of God's glory and you're considered guilty. Book of Isaiah says all of our good deeds are but filthy rags before God. You can't find satisfaction in religion. You can't go to enough church services. You can't say enough prayers. You can't do enough good deeds in order to satisfy that longing. So we have a problem here. If we've broken God's law, we're guilty, period. It's so, so whether it's religion or family or pleasure, whatever it may be, it can't satisfy you. And it can't fix the ways in which we have already messed up and are messed up. So here's my question for you. What are you chasing? 
What is your thing that you're seeking satisfaction and happiness in? How do you deal with the guilt that you have within you when you do things that you feel bad about? We can all try to put on this face of, oh, I'm a good person. I do. But when you do bad things, how do you deal with your guilt? Because oftentimes that will reveal the God you truly worship. Are you looking to religion and your own abilities? Are you looking to the gospel and the good news of Jesus that we find in the Bible? See, my prayer this morning is for you to find two things, satisfaction and salvation. And talk about them like two separate things, but really they're the same things. And when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will never thirst, whoever believes in me will never hunger, he marries those two things and reveals that both satisfaction and salvation are found in the person of Jesus. Because in John 16, or John chapter 6, verses 16 through 35, we're going to find three ways Jesus is supremely valuable. Three ways Jesus supplies both salvation and satisfaction. First way Jesus is supremely valuable is that Jesus possesses the power of God. We're going to find that in verses 16 through 21. Secondly, we're going to see uh, that Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus knows our hearts. We're going to find that in verses 22 through 26. And finally, we'll see that Jesus freely gives eternal life in verses 27 through 34. Jesus freely gives eternal life. Well, let's start with the first way. He's supremely valuable. Jesus possesses the power of God. Look with me to verses 16 through 19. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea had become rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. We'll stop right there. In these verses, we see the story in this gospel change dramatically. The day started with wonder and excitement, and now the disciples were expecting and experienced dangerous seas and darkness. They went from Jesus feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, and now they're without their teacher in the middle of a storm. This situation was potentially deadly. There was nothing more dangerous than the sea, nothing more uncontrollable to this age, to these people. The Sea of Galilee had a reputation for being especially violent. And so they rode about three or four miles into the sea. Sea of Galilee, it's not really a sea. It's really a large lake. So three or four miles into the sea, that's halfway. They are in the middle of the lake. They can't turn around and go back. All they can do is go forward, and they're right in the middle of this violent storm. And it's threatening them. It's scaring them. In the middle of this chaos, it was probably easy for the disciples to think, why is this happening? Doesn't Jesus care about us? Why would you let us go out into this storm? But we know that the storm didn't catch Jesus by surprise. In fact, Jesus planned that very storm. And he was working in the storm and through the storm for his glory and for their good. He had a purpose and a plan for their pain, for their distress, for their fear. And we see in verse 19, Jesus comes walking on the sea. In Genesis 1, 
Moses described the earth as without form and void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And here over these deep and dark, chaotic waters, Jesus walks and hovers above the waters, just like the Spirit of God. Psalm 89 tells us that God is the one who rules the raging sea, and God alone has the power to still the sea. And so here, what is Jesus telling us? What is he showing to his disciples? He's showing us that he possesses the power of Almighty God. Then he comes towards them, which at first does not ease their fears at all. They're terrified. Actually, in one of the other Gospels, they thought Jesus was a ghost when they saw him walking on the sea. But then Jesus speaks to them in verse 20. Look with me and read what he said. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Here Jesus does not give them a lecture. He does not give them a theology lesson. He sees their fear and like a father comforting his young children, he simply tells them, I'm here, don't be scared. He lets them know that they're not seeing some ghost or something dangerous. It's their teacher. It's their friend. It's their master. And they know his voice. It would have been very familiar to them. And hearing it, their fears vanish in an instant. And that's why in verse 21, it says they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land which they were going. Everything changed in the blink of an eye. Once they saw that Jesus was with them. But then let me ask, when was Jesus not with them, really? Jesus being truly human, yet truly divine, is all places at all time, experiences what the theologians call omnipresence, that he is everywhere. Jesus was just as much with them in the boat when he wasn't with them in the boat than when he got in the boat. Sounds confusing, but you hear what I'm saying? So let me ask you, Christian, what are you afraid of? What are you worried about? What gives you anxiety? Don't you, add that no one, don't you know that no one can add an hour to his life by worrying? I'm not saying don't take common sense steps to protect yourself and to protect your I'm saying, why are you afraid of things that you cannot control? God holds the future in his hands and his plans are good. Most of the things we worry about would stop being so terrifying. If only we could see Jesus in control and with us. But let me tell you, he is no less with us in heaven than if he were standing right next to us. He's guiding all of human history for his purposes. And he works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So happy are all those who can hear Christ's voice through the darkest night and hear him saying to us, it is I, do not be afraid. Amen? Amen. This is the power that Jesus possesses. If you look back at verse 20, something I want to point out that's not really clear in English. It is the phrase, it is I. That phrase can literally be translated to the phrase, I am. And that may not mean much to you and me, but it meant a lot to the Israelites. Back in the book of Exodus, Moses had encountered a burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed by the fire. And the voice of God spoke to Moses from the bush. And the bush said to Moses, go into Egypt and tell Pharaoh to free my people and to get them out of Egypt. And during the midst of this conversation, Moses at one point says, If I go to this people, who should I tell them to sit me? What does God say? I am who I am. 
So what does Jesus do when he's on the sea at this point approaching his disciples? He uses this title as he's bending the laws of nature and he greets his disciples and claiming to be God alone. How can Jesus, a man, use this title for himself? Because he is God and he possesses the power of almighty God. He controls the raging sea and at his word he causes the waters to be still. He causes mountains to crumble and islands to be formed out of nothing. In the beginning, he was with God and he was God. And all things were made by him and through him and for him. And he holds all things in the universe, all things together by the word of his power. Amen. This is the power that Jesus possesses. He uses this title. He displays his power to show his disciples exactly who he is. It's a small thing to walk on water for the one who made the hydrogen and oxygen atoms. Jesus can walk on water because he possesses the power of God. But he also possesses the mind of God in that he knows the hearts of all mankind. Jesus knows even our hearts. Look with me to verses 22 through 24. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Stop there. In these verses, we go back to the crowd that was fed by Jesus. They're determined. Jesus has disappeared, but they're not giving up that easy. They wait for him to return, but eventually they realize not only are his disciples gone, but it seems like he's not coming back. But these guys are eager, and they're out to find their man. They're out to find their king, their prophet. So they all get in the boats. They head to Capernaum. Verse 59 actually tells us they find Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum. And after this multi-day search, the natural question is their first question. And they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? Really, Jesus. R.C. Sproul, the pastor and theologian, said he wishes Jesus would have said, well, I walked here. But he does not. But before he says that, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson wrote on this verse, they address him as rabbi, betraying their own confusion and uncertainty. They acknowledge him as teacher, though they're about to disagree with his teaching. They're desperate to make him king, though they understand little of the nature of his reign. And here Jesus knows their hearts. He knows their true motivation, so he doesn't answer their question at all. He actually changes the subject. Look back with me to verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor and wrote this paraphrase of the Bible, he paraphrased verse 26 this way. He said, Jesus answered, you've come looking for me not because you saw God in my actions, but because I fed you, filled your stomachs, and for free. These people had seen the power of God in Jesus' miracle, but they missed the power of God in it. They saw the sign, but they missed the significance of it. Some rabbis at this time taught that the Messiah would usher in an era of literal feasting, that when the Messiah comes back, every day there's going to be a feast, and he's going to provide for us. 
And so when they see Jesus multiply the bread and they fish, they said, Jesus is going to be our meal ticket. Look what I can get out of him. They didn't understand who Jesus really was. All they cared about is what Jesus could give them, and Jesus knew it. And here he calls them on it. Just like in chapter 5, when we saw a man who had been disabled for 37 years, and Jesus heals him miraculously. And later when Jesus went to find this man, he says, sin no more. And he offers him spiritual healing, but the man declines it. He says, no thank you. I got my physical healing. I don't need that. He wanted to be healed, but he didn't want Jesus. And on paper, these people seem like hardcore followers. They're tracking Jesus through the wilderness and getting in boats and crossing large bodies of water just in the hopes of finding Jesus. But Jesus knows their hearts. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus doesn't judge these followers merely by their actions. He knows why they're really searching for him. In fact, Jesus knows the thoughts and the motivations of every person on the planet. He knows our hearts. He knows our sins and our struggles and the real reasons why we do the things that we do. And here that knowledge is on display. That thing that you did that you wish nobody ever knew about, that thing that you've done or that you are currently doing that you'd be ashamed if someone else knew, Jesus sees you. There's no hiding behind him. There's no mask. He sees you for all that you are, your sins and everything. He knows. And that should make us tremble in one sense because if he's the righteous God of the universe, there's no excuse that you're going to be able to come to Jesus with and say, hey, you don't understand. He understands perfectly. He knows your heart. He knows everything. There's no hiding from him. But there's another sense in which it should reassure us because when did Christ die for sinners? He died for us while we were still sinners, not when you cleaned up your act and got your stuff all together. He knows the worst thing you've ever done and still displayed his love on the cross. Amen? This is the power and the knowledge of Jesus. He possesses the power of God. He knows our hearts, but he also freely gives eternal life. Look with me to verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the fa- God the Father has set his seal. In this time, most people worked for the sole motivation of putting bread on the table, of eating. They weren't overeating. They weren't gluttonous. They just needed to work every day to make sure the crops and the animals were well maintained because if you don't work, you don't eat. Don't work, you die. If you decided to take off work, you wouldn't tick off your boss. You would not survive. If you've lived paycheck to paycheck, then you know a little bit of what this life is like. And you're not working with any kind of goal. You're just trying to survive. And these Israelites were so focused on life here, on bread here, that they've missed out on eternal life. All food eventually rots. Even if you earn a bunch of money and save it all, you can't take it with you when you die. You know what I've never seen in my life? A U-Haul following a hearse. You can't take it with you. Even the pyramids where these great Egyptians stored up all these gold and even had their servants buried with them. It just took a couple thousand years for some Americans to come and dig it all up and put it in museums. They can't take it with them. It was all vanity. So let me ask you, what are you seeking after? What is your bread? What are you striving for? Are you like the man who was paralyzed that, that you're, so, you're so hurt and disabled by some kind of pain or some kind of frustration or some kind of hurt that you're just seeking anything that can heal this discomfort or pain? 
Are you chasing after success? Just one more promotion, just one more raise, and that'll be enough? Are you chasing after love or intimacy? Just one more relationship, just one more experience, just one more hookup, and then I'll finally be satisfied. But it will never be enough. It will all perish. Don't work for the food that perishes. Instead, work for the food that endures forever. Jesus is the Son of Man, and he will freely give eternal life to all who come to him. So how do you come to him? How does he give it? Great question. Look with me to verse 28. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? The crowd heard Jesus say, don't work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. They hear the statement, and this is what they translate it to. Quit your job and start working to earn your salvation. Right? And that's not what Jesus was saying. That's bad theology. And, and as, as a young man in a very religious system, a very religious school, it seemed to me as if the most religious and righteous people, the people who are most likely going to heaven, were the ones who sacrificed everything and took a vow of poverty and became a monk and they just prayed all day. And, and honestly, I wanted nothing of that, but that was how you got eternal life. That was the gospel that was given to me. And these Jews, this crowd are listening to Jesus and they're saying, Okay, I hear you. There's some kind of bread that's better than this. So what can I do to earn it? What can I do to obtain it? And that's a very human reaction. That's a standard human reaction when anyone hears about eternal life. What do I need to do to earn it? This crowd hears about this bread that makes you live forever. And they say, great, what work should I be doing so that I can get this bread? And look at Jesus' response in verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. That you believe in him who he has sent. Jesus stands before this crowd and simply tells them, believe. How do you get eternal life? Not by going to church. Not by doing good deeds. Not by taking communion. Only through believing in Jesus does someone get eternal life. Should all of those things follow logically? All of those things should follow if someone has true belief. Absolutely. Faith without works is dead. A dead faith cannot save you. However, it's faith alone in Jesus that saves anyone. And it's so interesting to me that in this passage, John chapter 6 has been so abused. It's been so abused because John chapter 6 is the chapter of the Bible that's often used to argue that you get forgiveness, you get grace, you get eternal life from communion bread. From these elements right here. And, and here's why I think that's interesting. If you were able to receive everlasting life, forgiveness through the bread and through the wine, then verse 29 would say it. But verse 29 does not say, this is the work of God, take communion. Verse 29 does not say, this is the work of God, get baptized, go to church, get your act together. No. What is required of you? Believe in Jesus. Trust in him. But then that raises the question, why does believing in Jesus do anything? Because of who Jesus is and what he came to do. That's why it does something. Let's keep going and we'll see why believing in Jesus freely gives eternal life to people. Look with me to verses 30 through 31. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. A few verses ago, this crowd is ready to work. 
They wanted to do the works of God. They were ready to earn the bread from heaven that Jesus was talking about. But strangely enough, now that Jesus has told them to trust in him, to believe in them, they say, give us a sign. What sign do you do? That is the point. I got to say, are you kidding me? Where have you been? It was yesterday that he healed, that he gave 5,000 people bread from five loaves and two fish. He's been healing people all over the Judean countryside. He turned water to wine. His miracles are well known at this point. That's not enough. And for this crowd, it's not. Said before, and let me say again, the reason for most unbelief is not lack of evidence, but lack of will. And here, these people have seen more than you or I could ever dream of in terms of Jesus' power, but it's not a problem of lack of evidence. It's a problem of lack of will. See, when God saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he led them into the wilderness, and almost immediately the people began to complain about not having food. So God provided bread from heaven every day for the Israelites, and they called this bread manna. God would provide just enough manna for each day's need, except on the sixth day, God would send twice as much manna so that the Israelites wouldn't have to go to collect it on the Sabbath. And for 40 years, while Moses was leading them, God fed half a million people every single day. So the Israelites in Jesus' day wanted to be fed every day like these people in the wilderness. They wanted more signs. They wanted their bellies to be full. And see Jesus' response in verses 32 to 33. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The Jews respected Moses above everybody else. He was their national hero. He was their George Washington, but greater. They idolized him in many ways. And here is Jesus saying, you pay way too much attention to Moses. My father is the one who gave the people bread in the wilderness. And he's offering you the true bread from heaven right now. And in verse 33, it's obvious to everyone reading the gospel of John, who Jesus is talking about, what the bread is. Jesus is the bread of God who came down from heaven to give life. Why does believing in Jesus give life? Because Jesus came to earth, took on flesh, became a human, lived the perfect life that you and I could not, died the death that we deserved. Because on that cross, his hands and feet were nailed, and for hours he struggled to breathe. And before that, he was whipped, and he was mocked, and he was publicly for hours. And this is the suffering that he endured on behalf of sinners like you and I. He was born so that he would die. So that all who would believe in him would have life because the wrath of God owed towards humans put on Jesus on the cross, his perfect life given to us. You see, you get eternal life when you get Jesus. Believing in Jesus means that you're united with Christ. You become one with Christ. Even Paul uses the phrase, we're buried with Christ in baptism that we've died with Christ, we've been crucified with him. Is that you're so closely identified with Jesus that when you die and stand before God, it's not you're up there saying, hey, I went to church, hey, I did this. You're standing up there with the righteousness of Jesus alone. He's the only way for us to be forgiven. He's our only hope. And here, that's what Jesus is offering this crowd, but they cannot figure it out. Even though Jesus is speaking spiritually, this crowd is still stuck thinking in an earthly way. They're still looking for bread. 
And that's why in verse 34, they say to him, Sir, give us this bread always. But they don't understand. But Jesus leaves no room for misconception. He clarifies in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus came not to give bread, but to be bread. He came to save us from our sins and to satisfy our souls. How do you come to Jesus? You believe in him. You trust in him. You put your whole hope in who he is and what he's done on the cross. And in two weeks, when we come back to this text, we'll look more into the deep riches of this verse. And what even it means, it says, I am the bread of life, because there's deep riches here. But this is where we've got to stop this morning. Let me say this. My prayer this morning is that you would be satisfied and saved by the glory of Jesus. That you would see him as supremely valuable. Because in John 6, verses 16 through 35, we found three ways that Jesus is supremely valuable. Found that he possesses the power of God. He knows our hearts. And he freely gives eternal life. So let me ask, what are you trusting in? Where is your hope? What are you chasing after? What is your God that you keep leaning on? And even this is not just for the non-Christian in this room. This is for the Christian. That though you've been saved and given Jesus, how often do you still seek satisfaction in the things of this world? What are you searching for? What are you hoping in? Well, I've got a few pastoral charges. I've got three pastoral charges, I think, in which we can apply this text to our lives. And I'll say them briefly because I know we got communion, but I think they're important. First pastoral charge, rest in the power of Jesus. Rest in the power of Jesus. And think about the disciples in their boat thinking, we are about to die. What's the point of our lives? We've given up everything to follow this man. We saw his miracle and now he's abandoned us in this boat. And we're going and we're, we're, we're done for. Where's our hope? And in an instant, when Jesus showed up, he got in their boat and they were at the shore immediately. And almost instantaneously, when Jesus arrives, their trial is over. It's brief and momentary. And I think in the very same way for all those who are in Christ whether when Jesus returns or when you die, you'll be able to look back on all the pain, all the suffering, all the heartache and the labor and the sickness, everything. You'll be able to look at everything and say, that was light and momentary. When Jesus got here, it was over in a heartbeat because he has the power to heal and to restore and to give eternal life. All of our distress, all of our pain will end in the moment that Jesus arrives and gets in our boat. Amen? To rest in the power of Jesus. Second pastoral charge, avoid hypocrisy. Avoid hypocrisy. There was a man who was a missionary several years ago and he was ministering in a desert region. And one of the ways that he would serve and love the people he was ministering to is that he would go into the city and he would get clean water and bring it to the villages because they didn't have plumbing, they didn't have clean water. And he would take the clean water from city to city and from village to village and there was these wagons that had barrels of water on them uh, so that he could transport the water from city to city. And then there was at one point he leaves his first village and goes to the second village and he never makes it. So eventually a day or two passes and the villagers search for them and they send out a party looking for him. And they find this man and his wagon full of water and he is dead. So they take him back into the city. They take him to the doctors. The doctors examine him, and they determine that he died of thirst. 
with water all around him. Everything he needed to stay alive was within his reach, but he failed to drink. And listen, church, if we are in these things for the benefits of Christianity, but not the Jesus of Christianity, we will be in that same situation. Come to church, take communion, give your money, donate your time, dedicate yourself to this building. Never drink, never taste and see that the Lord is good. Motivated by your own guilt, motivated by whatever kind of routine or ritual has been emboldened in you by friends and family, motivated by whatever culture you were brought up in, and never drink, never take Jesus, never be satisfied. And listen, Jesus knows our hearts. He knows us intimately. It's really easy to fool me. I'm not going to lie. You can come in here and put on the church face all, all day and say very little and we have our conversation and you go on your way. But Jesus knows your heart. He knows what you do in secret. He knows what you're desperately trying to find, hide from others. And I'd say just expose those things. Confess them to someone you love and care for. Go to Jesus and confess those things and trust in him and taste and drink of the living water. It's not worth it, a hypocritical life. It's not worth it. Let your guard down. Jesus already knows. He already knows. And then last, receive the bread of heaven. Be satisfied in Jesus and receive him as Savior. One of the ways, let me, let me say this. We're about to do communion. And communion is the symbol of what Jesus did on the cross. So whenever I talk about receiving the bread of heaven... It's by looking to Jesus and his sacrifice and trusting it wholeheartedly. This is the work of God for you to do. Believe in him. If you're not a Christian in this room, don't take communion. This is not for you. The Bible actually says if you've taken this in the wrong spirit, you're drinking upon yourself the wrath of God. This is a very serious holy ceremony, but it doesn't save you. The command for you is not to take the bread and the wine, but to take what it represents, to take what it points to. Because you take the bread and wine and think, hey, this is what's going to forgive my sin. You'll be just like this crowd that thought, oh, I want this physical bread. But Jesus offers something better. Receive the bread of heaven. Look to him. Trust in him. Have your whole hope in everything that you are. Cling to him. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.